it's April. There's still an echo of winter in the chill morning air, but at last it's springtime. It feels like an eternity since our previous podcast, and yet it's merely been the turn of a single season. Every cell in my body feels like it's clamouring to take it all in. The light, the birdsong, the colour, the warmth. I find myself rather desperately yearning for the sense of hope and renewal that it brings. Means the lemon, a busy time. Those are flowers are coming, and there's there's a sun in the air. I said. No more rain. Springtime. I actually don't really know. Lambs, flowers, daffodils, and everything coming back to life again after the winter. By the time you get into April, it's like it's all burst and it's totally joyous. Uh, we were a long time waiting for it, but eventually it has come, and it's seems to be coming in fairly well. So hopefully it will last. I love the flowers in springtime. They're very beautiful. And I also love um, the flowers when you get to smell them. To see the spring barley coming up, the crops, that's what it means to me. Welcome to the spring episode of the Shaking Bog podcast where art and nature meet. Those were some of my neighbours from the Glencree Valley, County Wicklow, telling me a little of what springtime means to them. In keeping with recent COVID restrictions, we're staying close to home for this episode, drawing mainly on the voices of artists from across different disciplines who live within or close to the county borders. One of these artists is Colin McNamara, and I give him a special mention here because he has presented us with a rare gift, an original piece, Interweaving Memoir and Music. We include the full 23 minutes of this at the end of the podcast, so you may choose to treat this as an episode in two parts. But I do urge you to pause and listen to it all, because you're in for a treat. First of all, we begin with a reflection and reading that beautifully sets the scene for spring. It's from Jane Clark, who lives in Glenmalure. Her work possesses a rare clarity and simplicity that gently resonates with the rhythms of nature and the cycles of life. Nothing is so beautiful as spring when weeds and wheels shoot long and lovely and lush. It's 50 years since I first heard these lines by Hopkins and I've loved them ever since. I even wonder if it's those weeds and wheels that lie at the heart of my desire to write poetry. This February, more than any other year in my lifetime, there was a palpable joy about the coming of spring. We needed to see the first primroses and the catkins on hazels and birdsong on St. Bridget's Day seemed like a reward for making it through the winter. 
neighbours stopped to chat about the sight of a butterfly on a sunny afternoon. And on the radio, there were these lively exchanges about frog spawn. I suppose it's both the reality and the symbolism of spring that we need. To see new shoots pushing up into the light, to feel reinvigorated like the soil, and to understand ourselves as part of the universal cycle of life. I'd like to read a poem about one of the eternal symbols of spring. Lambs have always lifted my spirits. From when I was a child, bottle feeding orphaned lambs on a farm in Roscommon, to now in Glenmalure, where the fields around us are loud with lambs bleating these days. This poem is from my second collection, When the Tree Falls, and it was inspired by a conversation with my nephew when he was about 10 years old. And it was his first experience of lambing on his own. And in his excitement, he gave me the last line of the poem. Birthing the lamb. Almost dawn, a March wind whistles bitter through the shed where the boy kneels to a ewe panting in the corner. Water's broken, eyes closed, lip curled. She strains with every contraction. His arm is far inside her, but his fingers can't find a hoof, not even the tip of a nose to guide him. Chest thumping, staccato breath, he tries to remember what his father said. Take it slow, good lad. Push back her head. Slip in your hand, reach for a leg. That's it. Cup the hoof. Now ease it forward. Don't pull or jerk. Just a steady pressure. Streaked yellow and red, the lamb slithers out gives a cough, a splutter, shakes its head. Taking her time, the ewe licks off the mucus and nuzzles her newborn to its feet. The boy sits back in the straw on his heels. For a moment, he forgets and turns to tell his father it was the best, the best feeling. It's early morning. I'm winding my way down towards the Glencree River to record the dawn chorus. I've watched over the last few weeks as the birds in my garden have rapidly become more boisterous, more varied and more greedy as they visit our ancient apple tree for breakfast. Such a sense of busy, buoyant expectancy. And I find myself looking out for the return of the swallows that made a nest at our back door last year, hoping that they will return to repair what's left of it and take up residence with us once again. I've known Joan Davis for many years through dance. I believe she is one of our unsung national treasures, having contributed to a radical redrafting of our relationship with the body. She pioneered contemporary dance in the 70s and 80s and has continued experimenting with collaborative art as a professional artist and therapist. She lives on Gorse Hill, a rocky outcrop overlooking the sea near Greystones. I went to meet her there in her rather magical garden 
where she brings the worlds of nature, dance, art and therapy together. I began by asking her to describe something of the synergy that exists between these things. It is a deep relationship to nature and nature and human nature and they're not different to me. Mm. So there's always this resonance of how will I? This is probably going to come out all garbled, but it's it's like this being nature of of the natural world is what is such a resource for so many people, just to be able to be nourished by a tree or the water or the streams or you know messing around with plants and the earth. Like there's something so deeply nourishing in that and without expectation that you have to be good or better or you know or that you're going to fail in it or I mean maybe that's that's in there somewhere but it's not really at its roots it's it's so simple and again I keep coming back to this essence of of being that like what some of the teachers will call suchness it's just that and nothing more in its fullness, in its simplicity, in its beauty of originality. I'm just completely in love with here. <laughs> That's yeah. all I can say. And every, I know every nook and cranny. It is an extremely intimate relationship. Mm. And and when I go to a particular corner, I just know what has to go there. And it's like, it tells me in some way. So it's a, and, and this, um, there's a corner of the garden which has, and a part of the garden, I remember sitting in it on, and I just, you know, there's fairies here. There's no doubt that there's fairies here. Now, I know this is going to go out as a broadcast, so it's almost embarrassing to, to admit, but I have a very profound relationship with fairies and the, the magical world. So for several years, I was working in this corner of the garden and it was chaos. Every time I went to do something, it, the next day I'd come back and it would be just in bits again until I realized these, these are the fairies and they're here and they're just up to no good at all, you mm -hmm. know? Until I finally put a door in front of this, all that was going on behind it. And then everything just went quiet. They just didn't need to be disturbed by me, you know, oh. or interfered with by me, you know. But that took like 10 years. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think it sounds crazy, actually, <laughs> just to reassure you. Yeah. Because um, I think that, uh, you know, our mythology exists for a reason. Yeah. I sort of think the energy and the spirit of the land is something that yes. we don't quite fully understand, yeah. you know. Yeah. You said something to me on the phone the other day about... Mm everything in nature dances. Yeah. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, just give me a minute because I need to go inside for that. Well, you know, 
in craniosacral work, they talk about the breath of life. And, um, and they talk about how air and space interact with each other. And there's something about, again, this is probably going to come out all garbled, but there's something about going back to that time where, where there's wind, there's air, there's my breath, and that is shaping around the vastness of space. And so if I look at the trees outside, I can see this, the way it, the form of this tree is shaping the space. So I'm looking through the space. Now, I know a lot of artists will say, don't draw the tree, draw the spaces. Now, I've never managed that, but I, I see it and I feel it when I move. So, so even looking at this tree here now, which is very little wind at the moment, but it has micro movement and it to me is dancing. And so I just see everything as dancing. That's the lens through which I see. And it brings me back to this sense of a lone dancer on a hilltop, dancing being the, the symbol to communicate with the gods to bring about the rain for the crops. That's the most essence, essential of it. Mm. And so that's the communication with the, with the gods. Mm. That's beautiful. So then everything responds to that. I mean, yes, if the, the raindrops on the window, they're, they're dancing. <laughs> Each one is doing something different. So it's really, it's, it's the constant flow and flux of life. And, yes. Yes. Yes, and, and the, the stillness that is at the, the heart of dance. Mm. Mm. So you have to be a dancer. You really, in my book, have to find a depth of stillness. Mm. And so tell me, would you set off down into your garden often and just move and dance on yeah. your own in there? Yes, and I, I find it, now I don't do this with everybody because, you, you know, one isn't sure how it might be received. But if I'm with somebody who I feel as though, and I feel it coming in now, little dances just start. Just, yes. They just start. Yes. And they mightn't last at this age. They don't last very long, but... They do, and here it is. You know, it's just here, just movement. It's and would just, other and would other people sometimes join in with well, you? Well, they when laugh. You do that? They laugh. Yes. They enjoy it. That's yes. what I'm getting to realise. They actually enjoy because, and I preface it with say, look, just excuse me, I'm not having a fit, but these this little dance is happening right now, and it might even turn into a little song too. You know, <laughs> but it's something about this, you know, um fear of of being seen as crazy mm. that's that's a big a big piece in all this inhibition inhibition you know and that you'll be pointed to as there's the crazy one and that's that's been a big thing in our society that really the people who have the most wisdom crazy wisdom they're locked up a lot of the time yes or what Arnie Mendel used to call them city shadows. They're not allowed out. So 
when you get in touch with this um, level of spontaneity and everything, there's still that little edge is of, mm. am I going to be ostracized, mm. scapegoated for being the crazy, the it, witch on the hill, yes. the all of that. And do you feel, Joan, as you've got older, that even for yourself, and not that you were a particularly inhibited person to begin with, <laughs> but do you feel that that you've uh, let go even for yourself of some oh, of those, those inhibitions? Because there is something, even I'm feeling it now, there's something liberating, isn't there, about yes. being older and really not caring anymore. Oh. So. I couldn't mm. care less mm. anymore. Most of the time, mm. it depends. I also have respect for other people who can be, who need to be very conservative. So, you know, it doesn't do to run around naked in a conservative society, you know, mm. so that doesn't work. So there's respect for others as mm. well in mm. that. But I really realised that everybody is mad. Yes. <laughs> Everybody, it's not just, you know, I don't need to separate myself from society. So I just have to, I just have to acknowledge that in others and include them, mm. you know, like, mm. what do you think of what we're doing and here give today? And give them permission. And give them permission to be their yes. mad self. Mm. Yeah, because again, like coming back to what we were speaking to earlier as well, that essential, authentic, spontaneous, fresh you know, people are longing for that. Mm. And we mm. just, it's been repressed. Mm. And it's, for me, it's our most essential nature to, to try to open up to that again. Last year, as lockdown first descended, and I turned to nature to try and make sense of things, I became more keenly aware of the vivid yellow blaze of the gorse in springtime than ever before. Back then, we never would have imagined that we'd still be where we are 12 months on. However, I sense there is a glimmer of hope on the horizon, and I wonder if this may partly come from the fact that no matter what's going on, no matter the challenges, the mood, our fears, nature is always there, gently ushering us through the seasons, just as it always does. Springtime. We expected it. We longed for it. It was sure to come. And now it's happening. I think there is much solace in that. When the gorse is in full flower, its brilliant yellow sunshine colour, along with its faint smell of coconut, reminds me of my childhood on the island of Trinidad in the Caribbean. As we are now all prohibited from travel, I decided to return to those routes and ask one of my oldest friends, Simon Ache, to give us a small snapshot from Trinidad to somehow conjure up the sense of travelling to a place far removed from here, somewhere filled with sounds, tastes and smells of a distant tropical realm. standing in my garden in the heart of Trinidad and Tobago's sugarcane belt. We're still officially in the dry season but you wouldn't think so to see how overgrown the garden has become. Tall bushes, vines and migrant trees are rampant because of daily torrential downpours. My family's usually fighting bushfires around this time of the year when the thirsty earth just literally cracks open and masses of dry leaves become potential tinderboxes. 
Ironically, it's when we suffer our most severe water shortages. So it's good old-fashioned bucket brigade to keep the fires at bay from encroaching on our precious mango trees. But today it's hot, really, really hot. This land holds its own secrets. It was once a cocoa estate, but then became part of the lucrative sugar trade. Indentured workers from India were brought here and they toiled in the sugarcane fields in Central, settling for a life on the island rather than returning to India. With them, they brought fruits, herbs, spices, even the water buffalo and bison came from India. In fact, my husband vividly remembers running bare feet as a small boy through the sugarcane to catch a ride on the bison cart piled high with cane to be taken for weighing. The imported plants and trees survived the journey, but none more so than the mango, which thrived and is now synonymous with this tropical island. Mangoes and citrus dominate the garden here, with at least five different varieties of mango. Indian culture has flourished here. This place is like a gateway to India. It's customary for East Indian housewives to create an array of green mango-based chutneys and char and kuchala, which are served with spicy curries, rotis, and our most popular street food delicacy topping known as doubles. In the distance, tassa drums roll for telling an upcoming Hindu wedding. Those uniquely East Indian rhythms welcome the future. The pundit will preside over lovingly preserved Hindu wedding rites, and there will be much singing and dancing around the ornately bedecked bride and groom. Mountains of delicious Indian vegetarian food heaped on platters will be served to guests on elegant forest sohari leaves, a relative of the banana. But the drums also signal a remembrance, a remembrance of the past, the triumph of hard work over adversity, of faith, of perseverance, of promise. You can bet sweet curried mango will be the star guest at the banquet. I'm standing now within the forest, just overlooking the Glen Cree River, in what must be one of my very favourite places in the entire valley. I've just walked past a badger's set, and the ground is lush and already pungent with the smell of wild garlic, although it is yet to bloom. The bluebells are starting to lay out their lilac carpet, and the primroses are in full blossom. It's heavenly. But the prize of springtime has to be the full-throated, joyous bird song. Have a listen. I hope you can hear the thrush, its voice soaring in the midst of that chorus. It's a truly wondrous thing. As I stand here in what I imagine is native woodland, my mind is drawn to forestry expert and environmentalist Kieran Fallon, who heads up Quilcher Nature. A fabulous communicator and an inspiration on in all things relating to forestry, I asked him to briefly reflect on the significance of woodland for us all. So once upon a time, yes, Ireland was as an island uh, comprehensively covered by trees, and this is before humans arrived. But um, in, in a, a number of waves of deforestation, the, the country was, was uh, completely 
uh, denuded of trees. And when the when the modern state, the modern Irish state, was formed less than a hundred years ago. Um, Historians differ, but not by too much. Some think 0.4%, some think 0.6%, but really, really small levels of forest cover. So if you look at our, if you look at our history and our Gaelic culture, you'll see references to trees and uh, in, in place names and in language and in, in folklore. But in our modern culture, I think we're discovering, rediscovering, remaking a, uh, a forestry culture in Ireland. Well, I genuinely feel really privileged to work in, in forestry. I really, um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great area to work. It's, it's, really, it's really interesting and it, it nourishes you both, your mind and your heart. There's, you know, there's a, there's, it's a really full, um, interesting um, area. I'd like to see forestry, I'd like, we, we've got the lowest level of forest cover in Europe. I'd like forestry now to grow very significantly. The world needs wood, we need wood, and we should, in my view, uh, have a working model of forestry. Um, but I think we also uh, need balance. Um, and I think you're getting now a very interesting tipping point where people are interested in forest policy, or interested in forests and interested in the world that's around them. So I'd like to see uh, Irish forestry be, be more extensive, be more varied, be more connected. Uh, be more publicly supported. I'd love people to really feel a love and an understanding of their forests. And I'd like to see that culture grow. I'd like my kids to have uh, a deeper understanding of forests. I think it'd be good for us, uh, both in terms of our, um, the, the health of the forest sector, but also in terms of our environmental health and our, our place within nature. I think it'd be good for our heads and our hearts. I think we need to talk about what it is we want because I think my, my, my instinct is that if we spend enough time talking calmly about it, we'll see there actually isn't all that much difference between what people want in the long run. Mm -hmm. And it can be achieved, I think, in a way that satisfies everyone's needs. I don't, I don't believe there are these inbuilt uh, conflicts when it comes to the long term. In the short term, of course, readjustment is, uh, you know, um, can, can involve uncomfortable change, but forestry is a long-term process, so any changes, it's like, you know, turning a, a big sea vessel, it takes time to do. The question is, you know, how do, how do people get more involved? Well, there's probably formal education, but I, I wouldn't over-rely on it. It's more getting access to it and spending time in nature and developing an appreciation for it. And, um, I mean, I look back at my childhood um, and I think about, you know, where did I, where did I get this feeling for nature? And actually, it was probably um, down to an area of land which is no more than three or four hectares that was near the house that I lived in called, we used to call the woods, which is a really small uh, old woodland that we just hung out in and were there and spent afternoons in. And that gets under your skin and that actually makes you who you are. And those things, I still, they come back to me now all these decades later. So I think people's views, intuitive views, sort of aesthetic views, their, their emotional views, they're real. They, they need to be taken into account um, as well. If we want people to love forestry, to have it in their hearts and to support it and believe it's something that's part of who they are, part of who Ireland is. But I see, I see a real change in attitudes and sensibilities in the last five years. You know, uh, it, it, things are changing very quickly.
So I am, I am hopeful. I think there's a lot to do <clears throat> within Ireland because we have such a low level of forest cover. We have a really high ceiling. You know, we could do so much in the decades to come. Uh, I am hopeful. Now, uh, I think you've got to temper that hope with, you know, uh, a sense of the challenge and the things that need to be done and we do need to get doing them soon and we do need to change things to move quickly but I think there is the potential to uh, to change and I think the potential I think the, the future for Irish forestry could be very bright. I'm on my way home now and I can hear the voices of the early arrivals at St Patrick's National School in Curtistown, just a stone's throw from my house. It's a beautiful day so I'm sure that some of them will be making their way up to the outdoor classroom a new and inspired addition to the school, nestled alongside some woodland and overlooking the valley. Declan Murphy is an avid bird watcher and a beautiful chronicler of nature. On the eve of the publication of his second book, The Spirit of the River, A Quest for the Kingfisher, I went to record him reading a passage from it on the banks of the Animo River. The valley wall opposite rose darkly from the shadowy waters. No colour was discernible, merely monochrome. The ridge top was clearly defined against the pale sky, as though an artist had painted it with India ink. The water, a perfect looking glass, did not just reflect the scene, it rivaled it. So perfect was this inverse world that it was almost impossible to tell where reality ended and contemplation began. It was possible to lose yourself in a world of your own making. Over the ridge, the cold moon hung trembling in the still cooling air. Its counterpart looked up from the opaque water surface a single sound pierced the silence that partly defined this gloaming. A guttural quacking. Looking to my left, two shapes emerged from the almost complete darkness. Their silhouettes crisply etched into the sky. Like an image of a pair of Chinese dragons with their long, thin necks and rakish bills, the two gooseanders began to lose altitude as they approached. Still calling, they held their wings up and stretched out their webbed feet as they prepared to land. These paddles smashed the perfection into millions of rippling shards and slivers, shattering the moon, destroying the landscape and creating noise from silence. Completely unaware of our presence, myself and my dog had simply become part of the landscape, they slowly swam in front of us. The disturbed waters calmed, waves slowing to ripples, before finally fading into flatness. The two birds gently swam into a silvery rippling pool of moonlight, before cutting a line across the moon's reflected face. As they left the cold beam of light and entered the deepening darkness along the cliffs disappearing into obscurity, I realised that nightfall was now almost complete.
I've arrived home now. I'm in my garden and it's time to feed the birds. I'm hoping that by the next summer episode, things relating to COVID will have greatly improved and that right across the globe, we will all be moving towards brighter times. In the meantime, here at the Shaking Bog, we'll also be busy preparing for our next festival, now scheduled for the later dates of the 10th to the 12th of September. And now, to conclude this podcast, a new work, Primroses, from the wonderfully accomplished musician and composer Colin McEnumra. Described as a still centre at the heart of the band The Frames, he has also branched out from his roots to become a renowned solo artist, having released three critically acclaimed albums, composed music for film and more. What we have for you here is an evocative piece of writing and music that is warm, wistful, lyrical and uplifting. We will finish with this, as it leaves no more to be said. But may I suggest that for the next 20 minutes or so, you grab a cup of tea, down tools and find somewhere comfortable to sit so that you may give this offering your full attention. I'm confident that you will feel richly rewarded. It's coming to the end of lambing season here in North County Wexford. And as we have done every spring for the past decade or so, we help our neighbours Seamus and Anne with their sheep. At tea time for most of March and April, we call the pregnant yos and the lambs that are too small to be left out overnight from the fields. We feed and bed them for the night. Then there's the feeding and the counting of the yos and the lambs that are still out. Our soon-to-be 18-year-old son, Darach, has fragile X syndrome and is on the autistic spectrum. And his favourite activity in the whole world is to be working with cattle and sheep, and especially with Seamus the farmer, his hero next door. Feeding, counting, chasing lambs and standing in gaps about sums it all up. The predictable routine and structure of life on the farm is what Darach thrives on, and we count our pastoral blessings every day. We look around us at the sweep of green hills and fields with the sea on the horizon northeast and southeast of us. There's something about the transition from winter to spring, the pale light and the cold breeze, but there's promise in those green buds and bare branches and the splash of primroses in the hedges and the ditches lift the heart. Primroses transport me to another life I lived many years ago in the Aran Islands. When I was ten years old, I followed in the footsteps of my three older siblings and I went to live with a family I'd never met before on the island of Inishmoan. It was called a Corset 3V, a three-month scholarship run by Guy Lin, where primary school children from all over the country had a chance to live with the family in one of the country's Gaeltachts or Irish-speaking areas. Coming from an Irish-speaking family in Dublin and having spent every summer visiting our relatives in Connemara, it wasn't the same linguistic deep end it might have been to one of my Dublin neighbours. But while I'd been into town on the bus on my own and had sleepovers in friends' houses, I'd certainly never travelled to another city on my own, let alone gone away to stay on an island. And as the fourth of six children, I was very much the lone bird leaving a busy nest. I was going to stay with the Concannon family, or as I knew them, the Rogers, our clone Rudy Roger. Rudy and his wife Maureen had five children, and they were all close in age to our own family in Dublin. 
My mother left me to the mid-morning train in Houston Station. With my suitcase and fiddle, she handed me a paper bag full of books. The lurch of the train matched my stomach as I left Dublin behind me. I was met in Galway by my uncle Thomas, and I spent that night with my cousins in Nkiarua. It was strange to be visiting them during a school term, but sure everything about this trip was strange and new. The next morning Thomas left me to the boat in Russaville, and while I was expecting to see the steamer, the Neovena, a large steel ship that I'd been on before when I was little, here instead was a white speedboat, and Kylie Boyda, and it looked like I was to be the only passenger. Thankfully, I'd been on boats before, enough to know that I liked being on boats, but that had mostly been on a lake and not the sea, and I was about to find out that this was something altogether different. Once we'd left the shelter of the bay behind, the sea got bigger and bigger, and before I knew what was happening, we were moving from the bottom of deep valleys with walls of water either side of us, way up to the top of tall mountain peaks. Up and down again we went. My heart was in my mouth. I was wondering to myself, is this normal? The skipper looked like he knew what he was doing, though I sensed that he may have been working harder than usual. This must be normal. After what seemed like a very hairy hour or so, the sea quietened a bit as we got within range of the islands, and then we were approaching the pier. Farron C. Rudy Roger was there to catch the rope, and after negotiating the tall metal ladder, I found a new appreciation for land. If John Wayne were a fisherman from Inishmoen, he might have been called Rudy Roger. Pipe smoking, stern and stoic with a sweet tooth, he tied my luggage to the back of his Honda 50 and I sat in behind him and we moved off up the hill towards Balen Wood. A speedboat and a scooter in one morning was a lot for a ten-year-old to process. Everyone was at school when we arrived at the house. Bannon C. Maureen made me feel at home and showed me my room upstairs. She was a warm and reassuring presence after the long journey. While their two eldest children were away from the island at secondary school in Inishmore and Galway, the younger three, Trassa, Porrick and Ronan, were still at home. Myself and Porrick were the same age, with Trassa a year older and Ronan a few years younger. Dadja were grandfather Mikkel, Rory's father, lived here too. Porrick and I became fast friends. He became my teacher and guide in all things. One of our daily jobs was to move sheep from field to field as the grass was eaten. In those days, and probably less so now, there were fewer farm gates on the island. Instead, there were gaps, barony, temporary walls. You'd knock the gap to move the sheep out onto the road and quickly rebuild it, larger stones at the bottom and smaller at the top, while the other person made sure the sheep didn't take off down the boating. We were faced with a new puzzle each time we moved the sheep to a new field, 
and we would often have to jump walls and run through the parallel fields to get ahead of the flock, especially when there was a sheep with notions, and there was always one with notions that the others would follow, like sheep. Inishmaon is a labyrinth of dry stone walls and fields with vast areas of limestone paving, the grey floor of some ancient sea. Where Kunamara is made up of granite and peat, the Aran Islands are an extension of the Burren, a warm microclimate of limestone and different in atmosphere to the Kunamara I was familiar with. I started in the local primary school the day after I arrived. The school had two teachers in two rooms, the smaller children in one room and the second to sixth classes in the other. The learning time was divided through the day, with teacher Mosheras Rodi Beg focusing on different class groups, while the others got on with other lessons. There was a small and a larger break, and we would run back home cross-country over the limestone flags for our lunch. There was a group of three of us from the same village, Porik Roger, Jerry Bowen, and Michal Dara, and we fell easily in and out of each other's company. Because of the lack of trees, it was a great place for bird watching. And while on our shepherding duties around the island over many weeks, myself and Porik would watch the different birds collecting materials for their nests and the endless walls. We would check in to see if the eggs had appeared. I learned not to touch the eggs. Lest the bird would shun the nest. I learned how to recognize the bird by the nest. The blackbird, plain and straightforward. The inside of a thrush's nest was plastered smooth with mud. Robins with their little blue eggs. And my favorite nest of all, Lundjolin, the wren. Theirs were the moss-lined cozy ones that you would love to climb into for a nap. The twice-weekly post was a major source of excitement. After all, is there anything to match the thrill of getting a handwritten letter, or better still, a parcel? Letters from home were a godsend, and I remember how I would reread a letter many times over. There were only one or two phones on the island at the time, and as well as writing a weekly letter, there were occasional phone calls that were made from the post office below the school the postmistress putting her call through. Afterwards, I was never quite sure if I felt better or worse for hearing the voices of my family. Three months in a ten-year-old's life are like a year in adult time, and my memories of that time are visual, each one a different piece of luminous glass that together make up a Harry Clark window of sunlight and magic. Pause, wildflowers. Nonini, sarkini, marikan gurma, banyabob lachten. Daisies, primroses, bluebells, cowslips. During the month of May, we would pick fresh flowers every day for the May altar in the house.
Galigatubber, going to the well. While there was piped water on the island, droughts were common, and we would visit the local well many times each day and carry home all of our drinking water. Nfajrin. Each evening the family would gather to say the rosary, the hypnotic rise and fall, call and response, the sound of the song in a hive of honeybees. Lanufati, earthing up potatoes in the sunshine, blistered hands working in the rich black soil, centuries of seaweed that had been carried up from the shore. Picking wild strawberries from the mini limestone canyons on our way to and from school, and the bullons, pools of water in the limestone flags, small universes where we launched our little boats and ships that mirrored the larger adult world. Midway through my stay, there were rumours that my dad was on the island. And it was true. A crew from RTE were over to do a report about something, and my stomach gave a turn. He was at the house when I got back from school. We ate a meal together that afternoon, and he went away again with his colleagues to interview someone on the other side of the island. I waited up for him to come back that evening. Our house was across from the pub, and from my upstairs window I could hear the muffled merriment inside. Every few minutes the door would open. Capped and tweed-dressed men left to use the gents which was outside under the stars. Loud, humoured voices escaped into the night, and then as the door closed behind them, voices were lowered to match the silence outside. The following day after Mass, we had the whole day to ourselves. I couldn't remember ever having my father to myself before. It felt like a rare extravagance. We walked the whole island together. I showed him my collection of birds' nests and told him the names of all of the fields and of the townlands as we passed through them. He went away again on the boat that evening, and the next morning I was back at school. There were two other Gailin students from Dublin in my class in the school. Two girls, La Serena and Nyedan. They were staying with different families in a different part of the island. I barely spoke to either of them for the entire time I was there. But collectively we would often get slagged for being the Dubs or the Jack Edens. The slagging was more of an occasional annoyance than anything else. But there were particular homesick days where I suddenly felt more surrounded by the sea than protected by it. There's no turf or bog on the Aran Islands. There are also very few trees. For most of the 19th and early 20th century, for many, the main source of income centred around trade between the island's fishermen and the turf-filled sailing boats from Connemara. Turf was sold or traded with fishermen for their catch. The boatmen could then trade or sell the fish in Connemara or Galway. But of course there was a more traditional fuel in Aran. 
the most ancient of all in so many indigenous cultures, Bultrach, dried cow dung. Cowpats would be turned, dried and collected. When dry, they were odorless and burnt very well. My last week in Inishmaan coincided with Ihihinchan, also known as St. John's Night or Bonfire Night in Limerick, an ancient celebration connected to the summer solstice. The entire island seemed to gather at Dunchruhur, the 1,000-year-old stone fort on the highest part of the island. On raised stone platforms, neat columns of dried cow dung had been stacked. As the night fell, the six-foot-tall beacon fires were lit. As the flame caught, I could see the fires lighting to my right in Inishir and to my left on Inishmoor. And then slowly, slowly across Galway Bay, I could see hundreds of bonfires beginning to flicker. From Galway, west to Barna and Spigel, Koshariga, Indravon, Balanahoun, Russaville and Hararua, and northwest again across the whole of Connemara. It was a century collapsing spectacle, and we cheered as each new fire appeared. I can still remember my sense of wonder and awe and having an awareness at the time that I was witnessing something very ancient and sacred. I cried when I left Houston station and now, three months later, I cried as I left Anishmian behind me. Bikur Mafagal. Here I was, ushing on my way back from Tirnanog with my suitcase and fiddle, and two day-old chicks in a shoebox. It was my first time on a boat in three months, and the sea this time was as smooth as silk. It was the last week in June when I arrived back in Dublin. The day-old chicks had been a big hit on the train from Galway. Every station brought new admirers as the cheap cheeps from the shoebox on the table drew new requests for the lid to be lifted, whereupon two heads would pop up to a ripple of coos and haws. That September, I went back to school in Skalurkan in Monkstown. It was exciting to be back among my friends. At lunchtime on the first day, I suggested we play Cliff of Soccer. I was quickly and roundly slagged for my Inishmaan blas. I remember the feeling like cold water. A place once familiar, suddenly strange. A dub in Inishmaan and now a culture in Dublin. As I mentioned earlier, three months in the life of a ten-year-old is like a year or two in adult time. You see, I'm not entirely sure if I ever came home from Inishmoan, or perhaps it would be truer to say that the boy who left home wasn't the same child that returned. Over the years I've come to realise that so much about parenting is reliving your own childhood, but from a different camera angle, 
I was well into my twenties when my father reminded me of that golden day that I brought him around the island showing him my bird's nests. He told me how deeply moved and enchanted he was at the time to be reliving his own Connemara childhood of the 1940s. And now, nearly 40 years since my time in Inishman, as I stand on a hill in County Wexford, the primroses in the hedges remind me that life is a circle.
The Shaking Bog is delighted to have presented this podcast in collaboration with Culture Nature and Mermaid Arts Centre in Bray. It was edited by Bjorn McGilla and mixed by Steve McGrath, with special thanks to Ray Harmon for his music and to all the artists and contributors.